Outside, walking, hand holding my rig today. Rooster crewing across the street there. Just out back in my little suburban neighborhood. The rig I'm talking into right now is my trusty SM7B handheld into the mix pre. All of this is sitting in a little Amazon Basics gadget bag that was recommended to me by Jack Manhorn. Um, and it fits just perfectly. It's exactly the right bag for this thing. And I got a little USB battery on the thing, and um, it's nice because I can rig the whole thing up and just go absolutely no worries out into space with this rig. Kind of impressed with the handling noise on this 7B because I'm walking. So I wanted to talk a little bit about a project I did recently that had a whole bunch of very interesting technical challenges to it. And I really can't talk a lot about the details of the client, but I think that's not necessarily going to preclude me from talking about some of the technical details, because that was what was really interesting about the project, in my view. So the reason this project was interesting was because it was an installation project. Installation projects are, they're always fraught with technical challenges because when companies do big installs, you know, they can kind of dream up whatever they're gonna put in place. You're not in some standard 5-1 home theater, 7-1 regular theater, or even Atmos standardized thing. It's just, however many screens and speakers the client bought in whatever space they have up, and then we gotta make it work. You know, and all, all installs are kind of like that. People that work in haunted houses and theme parks and theme rides, that kind of stuff, they all deal with similar challenges. I know Cirque du Soleil actually did a thing where they did an install of speakers in every seat in the theater and they had certain sounds kind of rippling through the theater. And I've had things in the past where there was a surround sound kind of set up at the American Airlines Center that the stars and the Mavericks would use and I got to... Um, you know, create sound design for that and had to do mixes for that. And it was a very non-standard setup. So those, that kind of history really did help me handle a situation like this. So here's the broad parameters of what was handed to me. It was a room, 20 by 20, with 
four walls, and each wall was fully covered with a screen with a projection monitor on it. So it was almost VR-ish, you know, as far as total immersion, you walk into the space, and you can turn around and, and see in 360 degrees all the way around you. One thing you can't do, you can't look up and see anything but the ceiling. Oh, and you can't look down and see anything but the floor, so... Outside of that, it was very similar in reality to a VR kind of mix. With that said, I didn't really want to use VR tools because... The speaker setup was a kind of traditional 7-1 speaker setup. So they had a front wall, and behind the front wall was the left, center, and right speakers. And then on your right wall, you had the right surround, and you had a sub. On the left wall, you had the left surround and another sub. And behind you, you had the right rear surround and the left rear surround on the back wall. Hello, doggy. So, four walls, four projection screens, traditional 7-1 setup. Now, in this setup, there were visual elements that would specifically move from place to place in the screen. So there was like a comet kind of thing that would move around. And so I would have to figure out a way to pan it to where it was locked off in sync with the movement of this comet around the room. Now this is where it is a very different thing from like a theatrical setup. Because in a theatrical setup, even though you do have 7-1 and you have speakers behind you, you don't have hard panning sync to things that are behind you because um, there are no screens behind you and beside you. So a lot of the panning that comes past the screen is a little bit more abstracted. In this case, I had to be very, very specific. So what I had to do is I was kind of building my mix template was to figure out how to do my panning in a way that was going to translate from my control room out into the actual installed space. Oh, and the other kind of complicating factor was the picture that I was working against was not your standard, you know, 1080 pixel layout. It was basically a 1080 layout times four with the rear screen cut in half so that the true center of the video image ended up being locked onto the center uh, speaker. But it was all nice and flattened out. And so as I'm looking at this screen, I figure I have to overlay a reference on top of it that will show me where my speakers are relative to the pixels on the screen in order to do a panning move in my control room that would translate out into the installed space. Fortunately, I was given a document that had the speaker layouts as they were, I guess, engineered, laid out against the uh, proposed screen. And they had done their calculations tightly enough to where I could just take that thing and create an overlay 
on top of the actual video that they delivered me at the end of the project, or I guess in the middle of the project. So I had to jump into Premiere to take the video that they sent, because they, they sent me an MP4 that was mostly rendered, and it was of that exact proportion. And so I jumped into their other PDF document and spit out, or I, I guess I just copied out one of the graphics that they gave me that showed where the speakers were. And I threw it into Premiere and I, and I created an alpha channel and overlaid the actual speaker positions and the actual screen divisions on top of the MP4 that they had given me and re-rendered a new video. And in order to kind of better give myself a perspective, because one thing that's definitely been happening as I've been working in VR, 360, and, and in other formats is, I found that when you're looking at all the pixels, it's easy to, um, to become deceived about how close things feel when you're actually immersed in the experience. If you're looking at all the pixels, there's an object that's kind of sitting down there. It looks small. By the time you get all the way into the experience, that object might be right on top of you, and it might be asking for more sound than you would have given it, given the context of looking at all the pixels at once. So what I decided to do was render three different videos. I did one with all the pixels that had the speaker overlays on top of it and the screen divisions on top of it so I could see where each screen started and stopped. I could see where each speaker was sitting. It was just overlaid on top of the full 4x 1080 video. So again, it's like taking four 1080 videos laying them side by side, cutting the back one in half, and then um, flattening it all out. That's what they delivered to me. So I laid all of my seven speakers on top of that, with my screen divisions, and that was one version that I output to work from. Then I did another version where I cropped it down to just the front and left and right. So I cut out the back. Because most of the action was happening in the front three screens. The back stuff was a little bit more just kind of whiz-bang in a couple of moments. So that made my pictures look even bigger because my scale, my proportion changed when I cut that back one out. And then the third one I did was only the front screen. So the front screen was nice and big, full. I could still see my LCRs on top of it. And I got a real sense for scale with that one screen version that ignored my side screens and my back screen. And in the end, I found myself using all three of those sets quite a bit as I was doing both my panning and my mixing. Now, the other thing I had to deal with was my room is not a 7-1 room. My room is a 5-1 room. But with that said, the fact that they went to 7-1 was almost arbitrary. I mean, to some degree, it was dictated by the fact that they were using a consumer-level receiver on the back end of their install that had 7-1 out. 
but I've definitely been involved in installations where they're running multiple receivers and they'll put up 12 or 15 speakers and not out of some sort of coordinated Atmos grid, but just out of whatever. <laughs> and in, in every case, you still have to design for what that is. And the upshot of that is that you have your, your basic internal signal flow, which is, you know, your tracks are here, they route through auxes, the auxes route to output stems. And in cases where I'm doing design stuff, I end up doing another pass, or I guess another layer of routing on the back end of it that allows me to kind of scale whatever internal or whatever output I'm delivering back into monitoring that is appropriate to the room that I'm in. So the way I approach that is to take my, you know, sound effects tracks and route them out to, in this case, a 7-1 output. And so I treat the entire project like it's 7-1. If this was 14 channels, I would do multiple, you know, 7-1 outputs. So I'd have a left and a right 7-1. So I just do as many arrays as I needed to do to get however many channels I need to get up. I've definitely done a 14 channel install before. But in this case I had 7-1, so even though I'm in a 5-1 room, I did all my internal routing to where it was 7-1. On the back end of my prints, I would print those out onto mono tracks eight mono tracks, seven and one. And then I would take those mono tracks and route them back into my five one monitoring matrix. And what I would do is I would pan them in my five one space to where they were kind of appropriately positioned. So left to go to left, center would go to center, right would go to right, left side surround would be panned to the left side so it would basically be phantom centering a bit between my left speaker and my left surround. Same thing with right side surround. And then your left rear surround and your right rear surround would kind of sit in between your left surround and your, you know, you'd, you'd put it in the panner in a place that would essentially mimic where those speakers are in the room. So instead of actually panning hard to those places, you're imagining that the panner that you're looking at that is a square has um, speakers on it and putting the all seven of them where they would actually go to in your room. And because my room is a similar size, my room is, my room is a little bigger than 20 by 20, but it was pretty close. That actually worked out really, really well. I could do moves that would start in the back and move to the front. And um, once I got to the actual final place, it really, really translated well. I mean, the pans really just locked off in a way that I was super, super happy with.
Uh, the other thing that really translated really, really well was the, um, the speaker location overlays. The moves that I were doing ended up having to be very, very precise because that comet was zipping around and stopping and starting all over the place. And there was other, you know, just effects all over the room. And uh, man, the panning was just spot on. It was just locked right in. So in the way that I approached that in the actual mix was I would have my screen up that had all of my pixels up and all seven speakers on it. And Dave Farmer out on YouTube has a, uh, a quick little tutorial of um, an automation trick he does that is glide to all enabled. I'll find it and put a link in the show notes. But broadly what I would do is I would look at wherever the thing was on my version of the video that had all of my speakers up and I would mark it and then I would just kind of step through frame by frame until say it was the comment hypothetically or whatever till whatever it was passed under a speaker and at that point I would mark it and then step through frame by frame until it found another speaker and I would mark it there and at every marker I would glide it to that specific speaker. So if something started behind me and zipped around up front to center and then hung a left and came back to the left speaker and then hung a right and went past the center and rolled to the right speaker and then disappeared off the right surround, I was able to track those type of movements very, very precisely just by using those, those kind of waypoints make sure that as I hit the specific places in the pixels on the actual picture that was sent that they would coincide with what actually got projected in the room and man I was just super happy with how that all turned out now in the end this project was you know a typical corporate piece jam-packed with music and voiceover not a lot of room for a lot of sound design not a lot of room for a lot of cool mixed things there was a little bit there was a couple of cool moments so, you know, this type of thing can even be brought further if, you know, if they write it to have more space. But that, you know, the project uh, was serving the needs that it needed to serve by having that much voice in it. So it was fine. But I was just super happy with how the steps that I had to take translated out. And I guess the reason that I really wanted to talk about it was to just kind of discuss... The other type of creativity that you end up having to have sometimes, and it's less about sound designing and it's less about mixing and it's more about solving problems and solving issues. You know, some things that come to you and they're non-standard. And you gotta say, all right, with the tools that are in front of me, how do I handle that? How do I approach that in a way that is going to work, is going to translate out into the world, out of my control room. My clients didn't tell me, hey, the best way to do this is once I give you this video, overlay the speakers on top of it and give yourself a couple of versions. You know, they didn't tell me that because they didn't know that. That was something that I had to figure out on my own. They, to this day, have no idea how I managed to make all the panning work exactly 
all they know is that it worked. <laughs> and, they, uh, and they very much did appreciate it. You know, they, they recognized that it happened. And they were kind of surprised by it, but it ended up uh, being very seamless to them. I just handed them back 7-1 files. They locked into the picture and it played back the right way. And they were just absurdly happy that they didn't have to mess with anything. And this is a project that took more time to set up, honestly, than it took to execute once it was up and running. You know, I spent probably two days dreaming up, you know, the answers to all the technical problems. But this was a short piece, it was like a five minute piece. So I, I might have spent a day and a half or two days doing the actual sound design and mix on the thing. It was a tight deadline too, but that also goes back to that Abraham Lincoln quote, if you give me a week to cut down a tree, I'll spend the first six days sharpening my axe. I'm sure I misquoted that, but that's the idea. So even though I know we had a deadline, I really did work hard on the front end to think through and set up a process that would give me a, um, a workflow and a framework that once I was in the middle of it, I wouldn't have to worry about it. I wouldn't be putting sounds on something or making pans going, man, I wonder how I'm going to make that translate later. You know, I, I took the time to solve all of that on the front end. And that really paid dividends when I was in the middle of the creative flow because I wasn't having to stop and ask myself if this was going to work or not. I was just asking myself if it was working. <laughs> so anyways, that's the story. I know it's kind of difficult to conceptualize just by me verbally talking about it without any visuals. You know, podcasting may not be the perfect medium to, uh, to discuss this particular project because there was so much kind of structurally and visually that ended up happening. But hopefully somebody got something out of that. I really do enjoy taking on those kinds of challenges. I consider myself to be extremely privileged to get to do this kind of thing in my in my day-to-day -day work. It's also right around the Thanksgiving holiday right now. And that's a real good time to also just kind of take a moment for me personally and you know, recognize how thankful I am to everybody around me, both in my home life and at work and to everybody that listens to the podcast. It's a charmed life I feel like I'm living. I feel very, very fortunate. And I'm, I'm happy I get to uh, spend some time talking about it. One of these days, if the company that I worked for does a post-mortem on this thing on their website, which they're known to do, I'll, I'll put it up and I'll... Um, I'll tweet it out again, we'll re-mention it. This one was fun to do, and um, I hope I'm not leaving out too many details with regards to how I pulled it off. If people have questions about it, if things aren't clear, let me know and I'll see if I can address it a little more clearly, a little more directly. So there you have it. That's my post-mortem on the little top secret installation project that I did this month. See ya. Thank you.
Thanks for listening to Tone Feathers. You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. If you listen on iTunes or Stitcher, please write us a review while you're there. To support the show, go to ToneBendersPodcast.com and click through our Amazon link or leave us a tip. You can also download and listen to our entire show archive there and leave a comment on our site or on SoundCloud. Keep up to date by following at the Tone Vendors on Twitter or find Tone Vendors Podcast on Facebook. Email us with your questions and ideas at info at tonevendorspodcast.com. <laughs>